What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Srinivas Rao is the host and founder of the popular podcast The Unmistakable Creative where he's interviewed more than 700 people from every walk of life imaginable Rao is a Wall Street Journal best-selling author of 3 books an Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, and The Art of Being Unmistakable. He writes and speaks about how organizations and individuals can increase their productivity and stand out in a sea of sameness by expressing their creativity. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine-to-five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Srini, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, you are, you're kind of a legend in the podcasting space, so this is definitely <laughs> exciting for me to be able to have this conversation with you. But I want to start with failure uh, and how failures can lead to success. And for you in particular, any failures that you had that really led to some successes for you? Well, I mean, you know, I think it, it, me ending up here is largely the byproduct of, of multiple failures. I, I think that my probably first 10 years of my career were really nothing but a giant failure uh, because I got fired from virtually every job I ever had, uh, only to discover that maybe me and, and sort of the corporate world weren't meant to be. Uh, I, I think that, you know, you often have choices when it comes to failure. It's either, you know, you react to this thing or you respond to it. And normally our reaction or response is, is to sort of uh, have a very bad response. We, we do something that is harmful or we, we react in a way that doesn't help us. But often we can find opportunities in, in virtually every failure that we experience. And for me, the opportunity was basically to say, okay, if I am starting from scratch, how would I reinvent this thing? And I realized that I really enjoyed doing creative work. And I think the, the big thing was that for so much of my life, my environment and my talent were mismatched. Um, I did not have opportunities to express my creativity in the jobs that I was in. So naturally, they were the wrong jobs. And so I think that in fact, the the first 10 years of my, my career, which are, are pretty much a disaster, really planted the the seeds for where I would end up now and uh, starting the podcast, writing books and, and all of these other things that I've done for probably now at about 10 years. I mean, why do you think it took you 10 years to really discover that you needed these more creative outlets? Well, I, I think that there are a couple of things. Uh, one is that the way that we're educated and the way that we're socialized is that we are kind of given a prescriptive life path. 
particularly if you go to elite schools or you happen to have parents in a culture like mine, you kind of are taught that you know these are sort of your four or five options. If you go down any one of these paths, you'll have a good life. You will have a secure life. You'll be financially secure. You'll be well off. You'll be you know, every everything will go wonderfully. Uh, but the problem with that is is it completely doesn't take into account this idea of of matching talent with environment. So I think for me, what it was was the fact that I did not see that there were other options. Nobody showed me that other things were possible. The other thing that I think is is really a uh, a problem with that prescriptive approach is that so often we think that we're passionate about something or we think that we want to do something, but we have no experience, we have no data points. So we're making assumptions and then as a result, being disappointed that those assumptions don't support our theory that this is something that we're going to be passionate about. Whereas I think that if we were to start out really early on and encourage this mindset of experimentation, of curiosity, of not committing to one direction so soon, I think you would probably be much more likely to find what it is that you are engaged in much more quickly. And and of course, from something that you find engaging, a passion will start to emerge because passion follows engagement, not the other way around. And so I think that if we were to encourage a lot of experimentation early on, uh, particularly in college, when, when it comes to taking classes your first year or two, is to say, okay, what am I curious about? That should be the filter, I believe, for how we make our decisions, as opposed to what do I think will get me a job or what do I think is going to look good on a resume, which often is the default filter by which we make our decisions about what we're going to choose to engage in. And if every single decision that you make is based on this notion of if I add this skill to, if I if I do this, it'll be a skill that I can add to my resume. If I do this, it might make me rich. If I do this, it might make me famous. Believe it or not, that is a very limited set of possibilities because those are the three filters through which you make every single decision. Whereas, am I curious as a filter? is much more expansive. And I think that if we approached it that way, we would actually see much better outcomes in our lives. So, I mean, you talk about creativity and how you started to cultivate your creativity after kind of the 10 years in that corporate world. What have you really done to cultivate those creative habits for yourself? Yeah. Well, I I think that the thing that you have to realize is that creativity, uh, you mentioned the word habit, which is probably the more critical part of creative uh, creative habits, right? Uh, I think that most people see creativity as this thing that occurs in a moment of inspiration or a sudden burst, but it really is habitual. You know, James Clear, who's a blogger and author who writes about habits and, and all this stuff, he said that professionals create on a schedule, amateurs create when they feel like it. And I think that when you get into this idea of, okay, I'm going to do this thing every single day, I'm going to do it on a schedule, I am going to do it consistently, inevitably what will happen is that your creativity starts to come out. It doesn't matter what it is. For me, that happens to be writing. So I cultivated the habit of writing a thousand words a day. It's the first thing I do when I wake up every morning. Before I do anything else, I read and I write a thousand words. To me, those are integral parts of making sure that I've had a complete and full day. If those two things don't happen, then I feel that I am kind of off in terms of of what I'm supposed to be doing. The day feels a little, you know, uh, you tend to have sort of chaos and distraction when you don't have something like that to anchor uh, yourself for the day. But I think that it really comes down to a habitual uh, a habitual expression of your creativity, whatever that form, whatever form that it might take, because we all have a medium in which we express our creativity. Uh, mine happened to be podcasting and writing. And so I think that that really is 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 
uh, how it happens. And, and I think, you know, again, it takes us back to that idea of curiosity. What are you curious about? But you have to give it long enough to see if maybe you do find it engaging because people are too quick to also write off things. They don't give things long enough, particularly because we live in this sort of short soundbite uh, dopamine driven status update world. Uh, and so nobody does anything that requires uh, a length of attention uh, anymore. And, and that to me is, is really detrimental. So, I mean, how do you really decide which thing you want to dive into? I'm thinking for myself personally, and I mean, there's 15 different things I would love to fully immerse myself in and put a bunch of time into. How, how do you decide? Well, I think it, it's a matter of, of saying, okay, if you've got 15 things that you're into, it's a matter of saying, okay, how many of these things can I realistically do and explore? And how many of these things can I give enough time to that I will get some valuable insight from this? So if you think about it from the standpoint of a scientist, right? Uh, my dad is a scientist and, and he's, a, he's a professor at UC Riverside. When a scientist conducts experiments, if they conducted an experiment and they based their uh hypothesis or they, or they base their conclusion on one data point, that would be a wildly inaccurate experiment, right? And so you need a large enough set of data points, which means that you have to explore one of these interests for long enough to give you enough data points to determine whether it's worth continuing to explore that interest. So I, I think it's a matter of prioritization. I think you you may have 15 things that you're interested in, but there's no way that you can focus on 15 different things at one time and be effective at any one of them. Because it, what happens when you do that is instead of focusing on one thing and becoming great at it, you're focused on 15 things and mediocre at all of them. Yep, yeah, you, you nailed it right on the head there. I mean, you mentioned how you start your day with writing 1,000 words, and I loved your blog post that ended up going viral. I think you launched it on Medium about how writing 1,000 words a day changed my life. What mm. inspired you to write that? And then also, what inspired you start writing a thousand words a day. Yeah. So let's, uh, I'll answer the questions in reverse because I think that's how they came about. So, uh, 2013, I interviewed this guy named Julian Smith. Julian is now the founder of a venture started venture funded startup called breather. Uh, at that time, Julian had one of the most popular blogs on the internet. He had written a New York Times bestselling book. He had worked on the Domino Project with Seth Godin, and he had a very distinctive voice as a writer. Uh, he was just a really, really good writer. And he actually mentioned this idea of a thousand words a day to me. And at the time, I was writing for multiple media outlets. Uh, I was working with a startup. I was doing my own content. I had newsletters and I had the podcast to do. And I knew that there was no way that I could manage that production capacity without some sort of anchor because I, I thought, this is how am I going to write this much stuff every week? And it turned out that if I wrote a thousand words a day, inevitably, some of it would end up being useful for all of the things that I was working on or trying to write about. And so that resulted in me developing the habit. And we can talk about some of the how-to uh, of the habit itself uh, after I explain it. So I started that habit and bit by bit, I was writing more and more and more. And then eventually, uh, some of the writing I shared as uh, Facebook status updates. And eventually, I compiled something like 100 maybe or so fat Facebook status updates into a Word document, uploaded it to Amazon, uh, had somebody basically edit it, had my friend Mars design a book cover for it, and we called it The Art of Being Unmistakable. And as bizarre as it was, Glenn Beck, of all people, was perusing Amazon, and he stumbled up on the book 
And for some reason, he absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, he mentioned it on his radio show. And next thing I know, I'm sitting in Dallas with Glenn Beck uh, talking about my self-published book, which subsequently became a Wall Street Journal bestseller, which is interesting because if you look at my books that have come after, they're far more well-written. They're far more professionally done. And um, they still haven't sold as many copies. Granted, the, the, the next one is just about to come out. Now, uh, so that really is, is the the why, um, and, and you kind of got got a why I started, but also you know how it changed my life was exactly what happened. And then two years later, an editor at Penguin found that same blog post, and that led to a book deal. So that's kind of the why uh, and how it changed my life. And we can talk uh, more if you want to about the specific how tos of developing the habit itself. Yeah, no, I, I'd love to hear how you develop that actual process. Yeah. So the interesting thing uh, about developing this process is that it literally, I, I leveraged principles from multiple aspects of behavioral science. So the first thing that I learned about was a principle called activation energy, and it was based on the work of a happiness researcher named Sean Acor. And one of the things that Sean talked about in his book, The Happiness Advantage, is that if you want to do something, then you have to decrease the number of steps between you and doing that thing. Uh, because the number of steps is what is known as the activation energy. So in the case of writing, for example, or developing a daily writing habit, the activation energy is finding a pen, finding something to write with, determining where you're going to write, determining when you're going to write. And I realized that if I eliminated all of those steps, uh, there would no longer be a decision to make so that when I woke up in the morning, my notebook would already be on my desk, the pen would already be there, and it would already be open to a page. So all the things that basically would be activation energy have been reduced, and you're much more likely to follow through on the habits simply because you've built an environment that's conducive to the behavior that you want. And so you reduce the activation energy, and you're much more likely to follow through. For things you want to avoid, you increase the activation energy. So for example, most of us give into distraction quite a bit when we live in the modern world with Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff. Well, one of the ways to increase the activation energy is to use a distraction blocking tool because now you have to take all these steps like rebooting your computer, turning off the distraction blocker, all those steps basically uh, have, have you know, that's an, you've increased the activation energy for something that you want to avoid. And because of the fact that you've increased the activation energy, you're much less likely to uh, cave into distractions. So that was a critical component of this. Now, the other part of this that I utilized was uh, this notion of success accelerants also based on the work of Sean Acor. So your brain makes progress towards any goal based on its perceived distance to that goal. And what I realized with a thousand words was, okay, well, what if the perceived distance wasn't a thousand words? What if the perceived distance to my brain was, wait a minute, there's already words on the page, so I only have 800 more words to go before I hit a thousand. And that way, you're not starting with a blank page. I think the blank page can be really daunting for a lot of people. And I always read before I write. And usually what I'll do, the first thing I write is as a quote from something that I've been reading. And that actually fuels your ability to, to continue. And so that's actually how I developed the habit. It wasn't particularly complicated. It was just a willingness to do these small things and then commit to doing this thing every day for an hour. I mean, I absolutely love these insights. I really want to know. So you open your eyes in the morning. Do you roll over, start reading, and then immediately start writing? 
No, I, I, I wish I were that uh, <laughs> hardcore. But um, so I get out of bed, I meditate for 10 minutes while my coffee is brewing. I make my coffee, then I put on some noise cancellation headphones. Uh, I put on techno track on repeat, and then I leave the phone out of the room. And then I write for an hour. I try not to use any devices for the first hour of the day other than using my phone for the, the meditation app. And so that's how you know you, you really kind of start. And the thing is, the other thing that happens, right, is that the more that you do this, the more that you follow through on this particular behavior, your behavior and your environment get linked. So for example, when I sit down at my desk at six o'clock in the morning with a cup of coffee and there's a notebook there, in my brain, the association is, wait a minute, there's only one thing that happens at this moment uh, in this environment, and that is that I sit down and I write. How do you take your coffee? Bulletproof coffee, Dave Asprey style. Interesting, cool. So yeah. when, when you're writing these, I mean, do you have a set agenda in, in terms of what you're no. trying to accomplish with the writing or are you just no, free no, flow no, writing? It is very much free flow writing. So this is another thing that people don't realize is that Sometimes I, I wake up and I have an idea for something that I want to write about. But many times I have no idea and it really is just free flow because what happens often is that the ideas that you have actually come about from taking action. This is why inspiration is such an unreliable strategy because you're not going to be inspired every day. And so what happens often is you'll start, you might get four or 500 words in and suddenly four or 500 words in, an insight just comes up to you and you think, okay, that's it. That's the subject. I'm going to write about it now. And you're able to kind of expand from there. So no, I, I almost never have any idea what I'm going to write about. And you know what? There are tons of days where it, it's so bad that you're just like, why would anybody pay me to do this? I mean, if you're not a writer, not an aspiring writer, do you still recommend that people should still be doing this practice of writing a thousand words a day? Well, it really depends on what your goals are, right? So if you have the desire to become a great painter, then no, probably not. You should paint for an hour a day. Uh, I wanted to be an author, so it made complete sense to me. So this is, you know, again, where you have to think about context. But I do think a journaling habit is valuable for numerous reasons. I think writing as a method of expressing your creativity is one of the most accessible for numerous reasons. One is that it costs next to nothing. You already have the tools that you need to do it. Three, two is that you can do it anywhere. And three is that it doesn't have to be this all encompassing commitment. So maybe it's not a thousand words. Maybe it's, I'm going to write two or three paragraphs every day, or even help, you know, a paragraph a day, because even if you're writing a paragraph a day, that adds up very quickly. Uh, if you look at that over the course of a year. So we tend to underestimate the impact of small actions taken consistently. Uh, 1,000 words over the course of a month adds up to 30,000 words over the course of a year. That's 360,000 words. You do the math. That leads to multiple books, multiple blog posts. It kind of is the, the keystone from which everything else emerges. You mentioned you're reading in the morning, and, and sometimes you'll read a quote to really get the energy flowing. What are you reading at that time? really depends. I mean, it just, I, I try to diversify my reading habits a lot this year, but um, I read a lot of prescriptive nonfiction, neuroscience stuff, productivity stuff, peak performance stuff. It, it definitely ranges. It's, it's not necessarily like one sort of set subject matter. I mean, you mentioned diversification. Something you mentioned earlier was leveraging multiple assets. And I'm curious about how you accumulate knowledge. Obviously, you just mentioned some of the books you're focused on. What else are you doing? Are you listening to other podcasts, attending conferences, anything like that? So ironically, uh, despite being the, the host of one that's popular, I actually don't listen to a lot of podcasts. It's not my preferred form of media consumption. I tend to like books more than I like podcasts. But uh, I, I think the other part of this that has helped me is the fact that I do get to interview so many fascinating people from every walk of life imaginable. And because of that, uh, I have been really fortunate in that uh, I, I've just gotten a world-class education that kicks the crap out of the one that I got in school. So I think it's a combination of the interviews that I've done, the books that I read, 
I think the media that you consume in general can be really a, a deliberate choice that determines how you gain insight. I think so often what happens is that people don't make deliberate choices about how they consume, consume media. It's just a default choice. So you go to a website like Medium and the only things you're following are, are there because you didn't deliberately choose them, but they just happen to be there. Whatever catches your attention for that day. Yeah, no, I mean, doing 700 plus interviews like you've done is, is definitely getting a, a PhD and, and some pretty high level learning there. I'm also curious, you mentioned your writing and how you're doing your coffee, things like that. What's next for you in the day? I would love kind of really diving into how you've set your day up. Yeah. So as far as the setup of the day, so I actually try to avoid any external meetings between 6 and 10 a.m., hence the reason you and I are talking at 11 a.m., mainly because that to me is my most productive time that I need for me to to really focus. So during that time, I'm doing a combination of things. Some of it is, is outreach for, for sales purposes. Uh, uh, others are writing. Uh, and then very little of it is administrative. I try to leave most administrative stuff till about noon. I don't succeed at that every day. Uh, but then, so basically it's 6 to 10 a.m. for me, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. for interviews, and then the end of the day to to kind of just, you know, uh, deal with whatever I have to deal with. You mentioned the Bulletproof coffee. When do you have your first meal? Uh, well, so I have the coffee at 6 a.m. and then usually breakfast by 8 a.m. Cool. So, I mean, I've also heard you talk a lot about how intensity beats endurance during your work. Uh, what exactly yeah. do you mean by that? And can you kind of speak to that approach? Absolutely. So the thing that we tend to, to, to conflate is, is productivity and time spent on something. We have this notion of, oh, this guy works 100 hours a week. He's a baller, so I should hustle and, and work 100 hours a week. Um, of course, if most people did that, they don't realize that they would probably die of exhaustion or you know they would have sleep issues. And so when you get that situation, it's, it's really, that's, that's not a good situation. Uh, I think that when that happens, you run into all sorts of problems. Whereas with intensity, so think about it this way. Uh, you could work on one task for an hour. Well, let's say in this case, we're using the thousand words. And if you worked on just that with laser-like focus for one hour, now compare working in that manner to writing a thousand words with a tab open for Facebook, a tab open for Messenger, Slack open on your computer, Skype also open. Inevitably, what you're going to get as a result is a far less intense focus. And of course, because you have less intense focus, the same thing that would have been done in an hour now is going to take far more time because of the fact that you're scattering your attention across multiple inputs. There's a limited number of things that you can pay attention to at any given time. And I think that what we do that really inhibits our ability to perform is that we actually uh, overload our attention span. You know, I think if, if you want to improve your attention span, the, the simple thing to do is to decrease the number of inputs that are competing for your attention. So, I mean, you've done a great job at really shutting out those distractions and some of those things you mentioned. I'm sure 90% of the listeners have all those tabs open right now. They're being distracted by 15 different things. Anything you've incorporated, whether it be an app, um, just a different routine to really shut out those distractions for you? Yeah, there are two things. Uh, the first, of course, is Rescue Time, which I love. I think Rescue Time is a phenomenal product to, to help you deal with this exact issue. One, because it, it does that, but it also gives you metrics on how you're spending your time. And I think when you have awareness, you have the ability to measure. And, and when you measure, you're uh, basically able to improve performance, right? If you look at any field that has proven to be consistent across the board is measurement improves performance. Uh, and then the other thing is that I basically use noise cancellation headphones. Like I said, I think the thing is that I try to limit the number of inputs that are coming at me. So think about it this way, right? 
you have three formats of input that are competing for your attention at any given time throughout the day. The first is visual input. That means the number of things on your screen on your computer, the number of physical objects on your desk, and whatever else is in your environment. And the thing is that you can only give your attention to so many of those. So this, I have to give Adam Gazali credit to. He's kind of the, the world's foremost researcher on this subject. But when you reduce the number of things that are competing for your attention, so for example, if I want to read a book, then it should be the only thing on my desk. If I'm talking to you, I try to use full screen mode so that nothing else is distracting me. Uh, I also use a tool called Hidden Me, which put, basically gets rid of all the icons on your desktop. So what you're doing is you're constantly reducing the number of things that are competing, the number of visual inputs. And then you have auditory input. That's the sound that you're hearing. It could be podcasts you're listening to. What I do is I limit myself to one auditory input, which is a techno track on repeat, and I basically use noise cancellation headphones for that. So now I'm not going to be interrupted by kids screaming outside, phone calls, whatever it is. Uh, that is basically how you you handle the auditory input. And then finally, you have your kinesthetic input. Like, is the room hot enough? Is it you know is it cold or is it whatever it is? That's more a feeling thing. It's not as much of an interference um, in terms of distracting you, but it can become very distracting if you're not comfortable physically. Then you're going to have a very hard time focusing mentally. You're going to have a, a really uh, a challenging time with that. So I think that those are sort of the three inputs that I would look at this through and then determine how do you optimize each input? How do you limit the number of things within each input? Uh, Serena, this is incredibly insightful. Uh, one of our most listened to episodes was the one with Stephen Collar, author of Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire, where he discusses flow and flow states. Do you mm -hmm. tap at all into flow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is part of why I do this is that I know that what happens in flow is, as you know, you've talked to Steven, so you know this, a 500% increase in productivity. And that's, that's a pretty solid ROI for basically just changing <laughs> a few things. So then how do you get into a flow state yourself? So here's the thing. Flow takes time. And this is the part that gets most people is that you need at least a good 45 minutes to an hour uh, before you even have a chance of getting into flow. So I think all the things that I told you combined with a certain amount of time, usually 45 minutes. And that's what usually triggers it for me. Gotcha. I mean, we, we've talked about your 700 plus interviews. Anything, any of those that really come front of mind to you that really left a lasting impression? God, that's a that's a tough question. But yeah, and often they're not the people that you would think they are. Uh, I think that it's funny because people think that the most famous people are the best podcast guests to get. But sometimes the people you've never heard of end up being the the, the most phenomenal guests. Uh, you know, I, I interviewed a guy who robbed 30 banks. That was awesome. Uh, still to this day, one of my favorite episodes. I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like it. Uh, I've talked to a Harvard neuroscientist named Srini Pillay who talks about the neuroscience of goals and using brain science to accomplish your goals. Uh, it, I mean, it's it's just been such a wide range of people. So it's hard to say that any one... It, it's, kind, it, it's kind of like asking a parent to say which of your children is your favorite. Yeah, no, I just wanted to hear your thought process. And the, the bank robber one was absolutely entertaining. I, I forget the gentleman's name, but I remember listening to that and my mind was absolutely blown. So I'll have to share that one in the show notes. Your newest book, though, coming out August 7th, I think, An Audience of One. What inspired yeah. this? Well, you know, it kind of takes us back to that idea of a thousand words a day. So uh, when I got the book deal with Penguin, there was a conversation about what this book would be about. And instead, what ended up happening is uh, it ended up being a two book deal. One was to write Unmistakable, which we thought was going to be a revision of my self-published book, but it ended up being a, a whole new book from scratch. And then the second one was based on this concept of a thousand words a day. 
And by the time we started, we realized that there was far more to this than this notion of 1,000 words a day. We also felt that if we focused on 1,000 words a day as a title, it would the only people we would really appeal to are writers. And we definitely didn't want to limit our appeal to writers because the concepts that we're talking about here are relevant to anybody. But I think the other sort of underlying thread in, in addition to the habits and systems and all the things that facilitate this is this notion of the value of creating for an audience of one. So we live in a world now where it's possible to be instantly validated uh, in the form of likes, in the form of shares, in the form of comments, all driven by social media. And when you live in a world that is driven entirely by validation, the temptation is to do your creative work in need of that validation. And the thing that's silly about that is that you have virtually no control over that response from the audience. And so when you do that, you end up not only making yourself miserable, but you also uh, water down the quality of your work. And the other thing that's really, I think, happened as a, a byproduct of the internet, this is the, the great paradox of all of this technology, is that it's made unparalleled amounts of creativity. But in a weird way, it's also inhibited our creativity because the default filter for why we do anything on the internet or using technology has become, why would I do this if it doesn't make me rich, if it doesn't make me famous, or I can't add this skill to my resume? And when that becomes the default filter for why you're doing something creative, think about how many things that people have chosen not to do because that was their default filter. Now, if you look at some of the most commercially successful projects on the internet, this isn't a question that people like Frank Warren asked themselves before he started Post Secret. It's not a question that people like Brandon Stanton asked themselves before Humans of New York. And it's not a question that people like Maria Pova, uh, Maria Popova asked before starting Brain Pickings. These were all people who had a desire to express their creativity and they acted on that impulse. And what has happened is that we choose not to act on this impulse because of the fact that we don't think that whatever we're going to do is going to reach an audience of millions. Whereas the real paradox is that what you do for an audience of one, in my mind, particularly when it comes to creative work, is much more likely to meet an audience of millions. So that with the sort of underlying you know, thread and message combined with the combination of systems and habits and, and rituals and routines that make all of this possible. I love that perspective and I definitely can't wait to get my hands on that book, but I wanna jump outside of work for a second. What activities do you do outside of work? Kind of let your mind just go free. Well, I'm an avid surfer. Um, that's been a huge part of my life. I think it, it's deeply informed my creative practice. I think that it's no coincidence that I've been a surfer and a writer for the same amount of time. And uh, I can't imagine my life without it. It's been really the source of, of inspiration for virtually everything I've ever done. So for someone who, who's trying to become more creative, you definitely recommend then getting involved in something outside of work to really get yeah, those juices yeah. going? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's not a coincidence in my mind that when you look at some of the greatest artists in history, they have all had a physical practice to supplement their creative practice. I mean, your infamous question in, in all your interviews, what is it that makes someone unmistakable? In your opinion, what is it? Well, I think that the thing that makes somebody unmistakable is the ability to basically take an input from the world around them and basically figure out what works for them, decide what doesn't. And then it, literally what I would describe it as, it's it's a bit like gathering ingredients and creating your own recipes from those ingredients for what you want to be. Because the thing that happens so often is that we look at somebody, for example, who's an authority figure and we say, okay, well, that person did this, so I'm going to do that. And that means I'm going to get the result that they've gotten completely overlooking the fact that, by the way, you're not that person. So maybe you won't get that result. 
We mentioned the podcast, The Unmistakable Creative, your newest book coming out on August 7th, an audience of one. Where else do you want the listeners to stay connected with you? Um, Unmistakable Creative is, is usually the, the best place. Uh, you can find the Unmistakable Creative podcast in iTunes. Uh, you can find out more about the book at unmistakablecreative.com slash audience, or you can find it anywhere where books are sold pretty much. Awesome. Well, this has been one of the most intriguing conversations I've had. I've got a page full of notes here, so I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Yeah, thank you. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.